Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Teaching Kindness, the Bullies Be Gone podcast, with yours truly, Nate Webb, the founder of Bullies Be Gone. Here on BBG, I go into all things kindness, bringing in guests and experts from all wakes of life. And we are all here for one reason and one reason only, to help you and your kids get over bullies, get off social media, and love your lives. So come on in and learn how to live in a world where kindness is king. I'm your host, Nate Webb. Let's get to it. What's up, everybody, and welcome back. It is great to be at BBG. Guys, you know I am a big, big advocate of empathy in every facet of our life. And it's been so enlightening to go out and to find so many entrepreneurs, business people, people that are winning in life and winning because hope and empathy have been a key factors in their lives. And I have another one today that I just know you guys are going to love. So I got here with me, my friend, Shay Swinson. Shay is a native of good old Blanding, Utah, and is a managing partner and founding member of Stonebriar Financial. He's a registered financial consultant and helps his clients find tax and risk-efficient retirement and legacy solutions for their families. Shay's biggest endeavors, however, has been his philanthropy efforts in giving back to the community and those he serves. He founded the Swenson Foundation in honor of his grandparents who raised him. Um, the Swenson Foundation gives leadership awards and scholarships to the Blanding, Utah community where Shay grew up, and he recently launched his second nonprofit with his partners called the Stonebriar Foundation, whose mission is to provide solutions to fight the lack of financial literacy plaguing our society. He's been nationally recognized, major publications like Forbes, Wealth Insider, and New York Today. Welcome to the show, my man. How the flip are you? I'm good, man. It's good seeing your face. Me too, man. It's been a long time. It's been I don't so know when long. we see each other in person. I mean, in person, it's it's been like since like 2014 because we both came home from our missions at the same time. You were from you were in the Philippines, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think we did, we, did we do our high council thing together we did, yeah I swear we did. yeah we came we yep. both came home september of 14 came to the high council together um and then i i watched your homecoming and i mean that's i think that's about the last time we saw each other face to face i think so we chatted a bunch uh, off of right it, but right no, but yeah right. it's been a good good 10 years man um so for those of you who don't know, Shay and I grew up together in little old Blanding, Utah, down in southeastern Utah, the butt crack of middle of nowhere. <laughs> and home of the San Juan Broncos. Big shout out to our San Juan Broncos actually right now. They racked up their 31st consecutive win, beating the record previously Incredible. held when we were in high school. Um, yep. So, man, Barkley Christensen doing great things down there. Big shout out. Um, so Incredible. growing up down there, super small, same, same town as you. It's so cool to watch your career unfold from afar and just like take flight and amazing things you've been able to do because – I mean, I knew you since way back in fifth grade when you moved to Blanding um, and just seeing everything you've done. It's, it's just I'm so humbled and happy to have you here today. So let's start at the beginning, though. You got to Blanding. Sure. What, fifth grade is when you moved to Blanding. It's actually middle of third grade. Middle of third grades. Uh, middle of third grade. So I, I was halfway through. It's like December. So it was like the second half of third grade. So at fourth grade and on really in, in Blanding. I didn't know it was in the middle of the school year. Yep. It came. I remember that because it was, I can't even remember her name, but I was in a class with McKenna Adams and Abby Bayless, mm -hmm. but it was that, I remember it was that year. Then we had fourth grade with Dinah Cahoon was my teacher oh, in man. fourth grade. So I know I had her the full time. Gotcha, man. For that period of time. Isn't it funny so, to remember like her freaking elementary school teacher still? <laughs> dude, I saw her the other day. Where did I see it? She was at my grandfather's, I think, funeral. And I'm like, Miss Cahoon, like you're my, you were like my first real teacher. That I remember, you know, like That's that I remember had an impact because we really actually really enjoyed her class. It was a really good class. So how was that moving to a different place? Because you you moved to Blanding and your grandparents started raising you. What was that yep. like moving to a new place? Totally. I mean, you're with your grandparents now. How was that like? It was a huge transition, I think, you know, and most it's so you get older, you forget sometimes like on my mission, I feel like I told the story a lot. And as I've gotten older, I feel like I tell the story less because there's just different parts of my life that have happened since then. But, you know, at, at about seven or eight, because uh, of there's a lot of backs history, but my mom ultimately lost custody of us when I was about eight. Mm -hmm. And it started a few months before I moved when we had our, I think we had our car repoed and I think like the house was in foreclosure. My mom was, my mom was getting money and she was not paying the bills. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. So ultimately, everything fell and it all happened. I was young enough to recognize it, but not understand I understand the important parts that right. happened. But I don't I don't know how we got there so fast. But all I remember is pretty quickly, we're in a room at my house and my dad's like, hey, we're moving to Blanding. And my sisters, who are my half siblings, when my mom lost custody, they were in a different battle with with my grandmother on my mom's side and the grandmother on their dad's side oh, that passed away. So they went through their battle. My father had custody of me. So his best thing was, it was no fight. It was just, hey, you're going to go live in Blanding. Gotcha. We're moving to Blanding. And this is from Newport, Ritchie, Florida. So that's like Clearwater, Tampa Bay area. Right. So that's where we were living. So one is like the shock of, we lived in like beach town, you know, Bougie. really, it wouldn't call it bougie, but it was nice. I mean, like, to Blanding. We, I didn't live in a big house, but like, yeah, like the beach was down the street. You know, life was as good as whatever you thought it was going to right, be. Right. And, Not and, a care in the and, world. And, and, yeah. And then all these things started to happen. And then they're like, hey, you got to move to Utah. And I, I'd visit Utah as a kid in the summers. But you know what? At, what, at eight years old, you really start, I don't know when you start creating memories, but, you know, most of your memories start coming after five, six years right. old. And obviously there's memories that happened before, but you don't remember in the same way. But I, I all I remember is landing in Salt Lake and then driving another five hours. <laughs> but I remember there was like, there's got to be two feet of snow on there or whatever. I don't think I'd seen snow in my entire life. And, and so there was a culture shock there. There was now I'm living in these, I think they must've been late sixties, early seventies. Now I'm living in the home of these people that are much older than me. Mm-hmm. And so there's a dynamic in that. And trying to fit in. I think my aunt, my cousin lived with us as well. So we had like a bunch of people in the house. So it, it, once again, I think looking back on it, it's very different than probably me going through it, mm-hmm. but it was crazy. There was a lot of stuff going on, but I think I was somebody, weirdly enough, I'm not a shy person, but if you ask my dad early on in my life, I was not a very outgoing individual. Mm-hmm. I think the move forced me to do that. Because my dad was like, you were quiet, you were reserved, you kind of, you kept to yourself. Right. And then I think when I moved to Blanding, it was like fight or flight. Like I had to figure out right. how to navigate that. So I think the first little bit was easy, but I think as I got older, the hardest things, which seems so dumb now, <laughs> I'm sure the same way for some of the things you look at, but the insecurities that I had in third and fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade because I didn't come from the same kind of family dynamic. Right. It's something like I thought about a lot, mm. probably until high school that probably changed. Mm-hmm. But I think elementary, middle school, as much as I maybe didn't show it, that was a huge insecurity of like, hey, my mom is in jail or whatever she was at at that time. Mm-hmm. And like being raised by grandparents and then at some point being raised by my aunt and uncle for about a year. And so it was just kind of navigating that and actually, you know, trying not to let all your friends know everything that's going on because right. you just didn't right. want to keep up the public aspect of that either. Yeah. Right. So the good thing about moving with Morris and Connie is like they're legends in my hometown. Yeah. So like Boris is a legend. And so everywhere I went, everyone knew who I was. I didn't know anybody. So I think obviously that helped a lot that my grandfather was who he was mm-hmm. and my grandma was who he was because that transition probably could have been a lot worse. Oh, yeah. Um, it wouldn't have been that. Oh yeah. As a high school, so, I mean, for the last four years, I've been a high school counselor and I see kids in and out of the system getting moved around because of bad situations. And like, yeah, but, it could have been so much. Well, worse. that's what happened to my sisters. My sisters had the other side and I think they didn't have, my dad didn't have custody of them because they weren't his. Right. And so they bounced. I mean, they lived in different States every year. <sighs> They barely got through high school. They, they, I mean, it was what you probably see. That's what my sisters went through. And so I tell people all the time, probably a little bit more of the empathy, empathy, empathy side is when people said, well, how did you do it? And I said, well, honestly, I kind of just knew my sisters had it worse. Yeah. And so like that weirdly hope for me is like, well, it could be worse. Yeah. Like it could, like it could be worse. And my sisters are going through that. I don't have to go through what they are going right. through. And so I can, I can do this. Like, this is going to be fine. I'll, I'll figure it out. Right. And, but I think the dynamic that was hard, it was just, you know, especially after my dad, my dad lived in Blanding for a year or two mm-hmm. before when we first moved there. But once he left, my aunt, my aunt and cousin left, it was just me and my grandparents in the house. Yeah. And that's when it, I felt like that's when it sucked in. I'm like, Oh, I'm just, kind of a kid that doesn't relate with these people or older, right. you know, and 
And so I think that's when I kind of became a lot more independent yeah. and probably more of my personality came out of this new personality because it was sink or swim. Yeah. Like there was, no, this, I had, I had food on the table and I had good people, right. you know, grandparents taking care of me, but I had to go find things outside of it. Right. You had to find yourself and especially coming mm-hmm. from those origins. I mean, it can make, it, it can make a person salty. <laughs> Like it can, it can put a, sure. a salty taste in someone's mouth thinking about a broken family versus your stereotypical religious nuclear families you see all around you. Um, and I'm not going to say you were an angry kid. You racked up quite a few technicals in basketball. I don't know, but <laughs> no, I had it. I think I, I didn't know I had it. I wouldn't say like I walked around angry, no. but I think I definitely knew I had insecurity and I definitely knew. Um, there was emotion that was probably suppressed yeah. um, over and over and over. And I think that's the way I looked at it is like, if all this stuff's happening, my dad's making changes. My grandparents are having to, they didn't plan on raising me. That wasn't a part of their plan. Right. Like I do retirement planning right now. And like, I can't imagine like a client coming in and be like, Hey, we have to raise our grandchild now. Right. Like that would, I know the financial impact because I have clients of what that happened on my family, that it isn't this emotional it's there's a there's a there's monetary you know needs that have to be met and they you know they didn't enjoy retirement they didn't travel they didn't they their traveling was taking me to trips to play sports right. you know so i think for me it was like well look at all these people doing these great things for me you know i just need to you know you know suppress all my other feelings right. because look at all the good they're doing and i'll handle that later yeah like i didn't want to be a bigger problem pretty much what i say is i didn't want to be a burden right Right. Like I did not want to be a burden. And honestly, that is maybe it helped me, but it is probably if you ask my wife, like in anything, that is probably like my kryptonite Mm -hmm. is like, I don't want to be a burden. And so I will do things that are not smart things because I will, I will refuse to be a burden. Right. Like that. I just won't do it. Like people want to help. Nope. I won't. I won't. Anything that makes somebody have to change their kind of life to right. take care of me is not, I hate it. Like I actually, I, in for good or for bad, there's good things in that. And there's bad. Right. And well, that. That, that can get us to engage in like self-destructive behavior too, because we don't want to like be a burden on other people and inconvenience them. But man, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here because you lived it. Your grandparents are one of a kind. Like you said, Morris is a legend sure. and you know, the way he loved though was unmatched. One thing that really touched me was the way he reacted when you decided to ditch football for golf. Um, yeah. I remember because yeah. my very first year ever playing football was seventh grade and they split all the kids. Uh-huh. And I remember I was on your team because you were QB for mm-hmm. the yellow team and Cam was QB yep. for the blue team. And I remember because I was a ding dong, didn't wear my pads to practice and I busted my nose very first day. And it was, I think I remember it was, that. It was, yeah, I looked like Neanderthals, good times. <laughs> but um, high school comes along. And freshman or sophomore year, you decided to do golf instead of football. And how, how did Morris react to that? Tell us about that. I was so nervous. I think at that point, you know, it's freshman year, you know, being a Swenson. And I don't think, I mean, we like my dad was a good basketball player. Craig, like, I wouldn't say we're the most athletic family, but we had some, you know, great athletes right. uh, through the family. Jordan, one right ahead of me, he was like my cousin brother. Right. You know, he played on those state title teams oh, yeah. and he did really well. And, and and so there was that expectation of, hey, I got to do this. And when I was playing quarterback in Pee Wee, it was so fun. You know, it was kind of where it is. And even in, in eighth grade, there was the tight end position that we had on with Coach Monson or whatever. Yeah. But then you get into high school and Coach Lee's offense was was your slots. And so I wasn't fast enough to be a slot. And so that put me on defense. It, and then I was small until, you know, until what, junior year, all of a sudden I put on like 40 pounds mm-hmm. and grew an inch. And like, if I'd have known that, maybe football would have been okay. <laughs> but at, at the time going into my sophomore year, I'm like, I'm a stick. Like, I, I you know, Cam's always going to be the quarterback. That's never not going to happen. Oh, yeah. I don't have a sh- arm to be the quarterback that's not going to happen so i was realistic right but i just remember picking up golf man and it was so fun and i was good at it i think it was the first thing i think i there's you know you pick up things and some things are natural but but golf especially now that i know is it's hard it's a hard sport most people really struggle for a long time for me i picked it up pretty fast and was good um and so I wanted to play. I'm like, I want to be competitive. I'm actually better at this than any other sport, even though I just started it. Right. But telling my grandfather, who is this legend, 
that I wasn't going to play was like, it was frightening. Right. It, was, it was very frightening. And I almost didn't do it because I was afraid of telling him. But something I've mentioned is I went and told him and he immediately was like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to golf. And he goes, cool. And the next day he signed up to be Tracy's assistant. Literally guys, next and, day, literally next day. Yeah, like next day he was new dude the golf on the coach. freaking field. He's a golf coach. <laughs> Who's this? Shay's grandpa. Okay. <laughs> Grace grandpa, he showed up and he was just a part of, and he really was my whole high school. And so, you know, we bonded that summer over, over golf together. The times I went with him and the crew and, and then to go play and have him there at every single tournament, he was there. And like, that was huge. That was that moment of, and he would have been at every football game too, but right. it, the golf was, he was a part of that. Right. Like he, it wasn't just a spectator. He was he was there taking us over, driving us, and I spent a lot of quality time with him, which was awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, awesome. talk about, I mean, so many things in there. When kids are struggling and they can find something that's their thing, their island of competency, man, it yeah. helps so many different things. Also, I mean, it's a lot harder to, to fix a broken golf club if you lose your cool on it. And <laughs> well, I learned that quickly, man. Like, I, you cannot play golf you can go have fun with your buddies and mess around. Right. It's fine. But if you're, if you're trying to get better every day, the biggest thing you have to control is your, the mental side mm -hmm. of it. And I think that, and I, and I've said it before in other podcasts, it's like, that was a therapy to me without me knowing it. I would have never gone to therapy. I think my dad tried to get me to go to therapy when I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. I'm like, nah, nah, ain't doing that. Right. And I would look at it very different now if I knew the things I knew, but, but golf, you know, without me knowing it became that because it helped me control emotions mm -hmm. to be able to be competitive because I had to. In other sports, yeah, it's important. Right. But you got a team behind you. You've right. got all these people that can support the dumb technical in basketball or or whatever that is. And some of the technicals I got was out of anger and some of it was sticking up for people, right? Barkley played on my my JV basketball team. Yeah. And half the technicals I think I got, and I got a lot was protecting him right, sticking up for him was like, he was better than I was as a freshman. And I'm like, I'm going to protect him. And so no one's going to come after him and hit him hard. So it was more of that, but I, I, that emotional control started in golf and, and it has helped me, I think in a lot of ways, understand patience yeah. and, and that no matter where you are on the golf course, there, there's a, there's another shot and you get the opportunity to, you know, you know, hit a, hit a bad shot, you can hit a good shot. Right. So you can always come back through it. And that's, it's a beautiful game of golf. So that's so cool. And then when your, when your grandpa freaking became a coach, okay, he, he knew how hard it was for you to come up and say, dad, I'm, I'm quitting the Bronco football team. He knew how flipping yep. hard that was. And not only did he freaking love you, he, he, he showed support in the ultimate way, but like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be your coach. You know, right. That is something I mean, let parents don't, you don't have to go be a coach. It's okay. But it says something when, when, when a guardian, something can support a kid like that. That's, that's a big, well, that's, deal. I'm sure you see it more than I do, but I see it from more of the distance of like parents and what I loved about my grandma who had a difficult task to raise a kid. You know, my grandpa was the, like the leader I looked up to, mm -hmm. but he didn't parent me. Like he, I think he yelled at me twice in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And one was disrespecting my grandmother and one was a golf tournament actually. But like, <laughs> other than that, like he very rarely, he was a man of few words to me. He was a man of many words to everybody else. Right. And this is something that my family can attest to. Like he never told me, and it's not something I needed, but he never told me he loved me. I took my wife down to meet him and was like, I love you to my wife. And I'm like, what the, like me and my cousins are sitting there. And it was like, we've spent our whole lives <laughs> trying to get you to give emotion and to all the in-laws, any in-law, it's like, we love you. We appreciate you. I'm like, what? Like we, and, but now we knew he loved right. us. So you know, it wasn't that way, but it was funny how he shared affection was very different to other people than it was his internal family. And I, and I, I have more empathy of that as I've gotten older, but, but my grandmother, this, this task of a kid who she had to be my mom. Yeah. She showed up to all the parent meetings yep. Multiple times I was embarrassed that my grandma shows up, which is stupid looking back, but that's the sixth, I mean, sixth yeah, grade kid, the seventh normal. grade kid. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed that, you know, Taj has got Ricky, you know, Coach Eldridge, you got all these people and I got my 75 year old grandma that's right. you know, trying to make it into the building. Like <laughs> yeah. that was embarrassing, which is sad to say now because my grandma was everything. To right. me. So like, 
but navigating that, but she, I think she tried to ground me once and it did not work. No, it did not work. No, I and, and I rebelled. That was, I rebelled and she never tried to parent me that way, but she parented me from respect, like a pure respect standpoint mm -hmm. that she didn't budge. Like if I got home late and this was, this is brilliant of my grandmother because she knew I didn't want to be a burden. So maybe she knew my, my internal psychology struggle. going on. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know what, you know, I never got to talk to her about it, but I would be home late. She'd call me and call me and call me. This is flip phone right. time, leave voicemails. I'd show up at 2 AM. My grandma would be out in the living room with the light on in her chair. And she didn't say anything to me. She would just wait till I got through the door, went downstairs and she'd turn off the light and go to bed. Oh. She never talked to me, oh. but it was like, you knew, like you knew she made it a point that I'm going to stay up until you're home. Right. And so if you want me to stay up till 3 a.m., I will be up till 3 a.m., but I'm going to be, right? So it was this unique right. reverse cycle, whatever she did. Right. It was it amazing. It worked. it worked because I didn't want that. I didn't want my grandma staying up. I, and so literally what I would do, <laughs> and thankfully she's gone so you can hear this, I would come home so she would go to bed and then I would leave. <laughs> <laughs> all the time all the time and it wasn't because i was trying to hide from her i didn't want her for to be the burden right. i didn't want her to feel like she needed to stay up right to make sure you're just feeling both needs. you're like i want to go out and party but grandma <laughs> needs to go to bed so grandma go to bed now so i did that a lot i i would say especially when i got my driver's license like that was all the time that i would come home hey grandma i'm home i think you're good and i'd literally not even go downstairs i would just walk out the door um <laughs> And, uh, and, and, you know, cause I wanted to make sure obviously she was getting old and I didn't want her waiting right. out for me and I was going to do what I wanted to do. And so I'm grateful for her parenting. And I bring that up. is like, I see so many parents, whether it's sports, they want their kid to play sports because they played sports. Right. And I think right. it comes down to is like, you know, don't live through your kids. No. Stop living through your no. kids. Let's let like, them have that things. Find and help them find those things young. Yeah. Like help them navigate what those obviously be realistic. Yeah. But 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 don't be your realistic because what you think is it's the gaming world that's happened, the good and bad that's come from gaming, right? right. There's good and there's bad. Yep. There's good and bad in, in internet. There's good and bad in these Everything. things. Because we take these old mentalities of like, oh, gaming won't get you anything. You know what's created? This is I'm sure we're half seeing this, and I don't know the date on it, of all the parents that told us that gaming would never get you anything, <laughs> which is true for a lot of the people. Right. It's still not like a false statement, but this is where the issue is. When the parent says that, and now the kid sees everybody making money off of it, right. now you've created an issue with that parent. Yep. Yep. Now they're because like you told them, now if you said, hey, you have an maybe there's an opportunity to be this, but this is a slim opportunity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But when you say that there'll never be a chance to make right. NFL, you'll never be a chance. You're you're just setting yourself up as the parent right. to never win. Because kids win. keep track of receipts, guys. They they listen to that crap. all the time, and they they'll call you out on that BS, and they'll say, "Hey, there's a bajillion people on YouTube that literally just game all the time. They don't even go to tournaments. They just freaking record themselves gaming, and they're making millions." You said. Versus like, you know, hey, yeah. you want to do YouTube? So, Take some business class. That's that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not to say that that kid would have been the gamer that right. did that, but it's saying you can't have these absolute statements based on what happened in your generation yep. because things are changing in, in the needs of that. So there's this balance between Liz Wiseman. I, I, she's been a good mentor of mine, wrote a New York Times bestselling book called Multipliers. And now Impact Players is incredible. Mm -hmm. But she talked about native genius. Mm -hmm. And so like what... What and I do it with my employees. Like, what do they do almost frictionless? Right. What does Jeff, Jeff's a great friend of mine, works with me? What Jeff does naturally, I can't even quantify. He's so good at that one thing. Mm -hmm. But if then I were to put him in a box, mm -hmm. I would not get that thing. Right. So, as a parent, is knowing, like, hey, what is their native genius and what do they like right. and what are they good at? And then telling them that they're good at that. Yeah. That's huge. Like that's huge. So many of our kids are being told at first grade they're not smart. Well, what does anybody know in first grade <laughs> about somebody's intelligence? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. and and that's my issue with that is like, man, like 
we're telling, I know I've been around people that have been told they're not very smart. Oh, your sister's smarter. Oh, this is, oh, yeah. this is my daughter. She's really smart. And my son's good at football. And now you are conditioning him yeah. or her to be not smart. Yeah. We're, it just, like, just tell them they're smart. Like tell them that you can do what you want. And, and I, I think we get caught up in that because we're trying to be realistic. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't be realistic with a 12 year old. No, like you don't know what they can. Um, they can be Picasso. You oh. have no idea. Lean into what it. Can. What'll happen? Lean into it. You know, lean into their interests. It, it's it's so interesting because I've talked to so many kids. They're like, oh, I just want to be a TikToker. I want to be a gamer. I'm like, okay, cool. So have you taken any business classes? Do you know anything about marketing? Like, do you know anything about, like, you know, website production, stuff like that? They're like, oh, I'm like, you, you got to do that stuff if you want to do that. You know that, right? And sometimes... The reality check is in, it will, will turn them another way. And other times we're like, oh, yep. dope. Okay, yeah, let's learn how. Yep. Well, that's the creative, right? The creative, There's, and I've learned this too. I feel like I'm more, I've learned how to do the business side of things. Like I'm an operator. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a creative. I can't draw. I can't do those things. I think my biggest skill, if you ask my, the people who work with me, I, I can have vision. Yeah. I have a lot of hope. Oh, yeah. I have lots of vision. I live five years in the future. I've, I, that's just the way I think. And that's good and bad all in oh, one. Awesome. But, but it's, it's, everyone has their, their skill sets and needing to understand what are, what's their native genius. What is, mm-hmm. what, what motivates them? What drives them in? And, and so many of us are told to focus on our weaknesses in school. You know, that like, I feel like a lot of our systems is fix our weaknesses. And I think the weaknesses need to be fixed, obviously, yeah. especially if they're like, but if we are not focusing on our strengths, number one, mm-hmm. half of those weaknesses are going to be taken care of as your strengths, yep. focus, as you build your strengths or in the business world, I don't need to work. If I took me, it would to be somebody that's good at spreadsheets would take me like a year of school, like to understand how spreadsheets work. Like my partner's a business partner is an analyst. He's so good at it. That same year, if I just focused on my strengths, my net worth could improve way more than me trying to focus on that. Why? Because I can hire somebody that does right. that side. I love that. Right? I love that. Or, or so, so what are we, you know, I'm sure Steve Young could have been good at other things, but he didn't focus on those things. He focused on playing football. Right. Right? And then he had his own mental health. His book's amazing of what he dealt with and anxiety at being the best player in the world. And he still had anxiety before every game. Yeah. But think if he didn't focus on his strengths and he still dealt with anxiety. Ooh, yeah. Right. Where would he be? But he had something that he was good at that he could at least hone in in to be able to to get him through the different challenges that he had. So I think that's a that's big, a huge part. As kids like and you deal with it a lot more. It's it's and I'll leave it on this one. I had a lady. I I ended up speaking back in Blanding. I brought Larry Gellix back and we did this event with Larry speaking there. And I had one of our former teachers come up to me. And I was mad after this. She came up to me like taking credit. She's like, I always knew you'd be like this. I always knew you'd be where you're at. And I'm like, oh, like I, I don't get mad like that. And I was tipped because I'm like, nobody in high school, especially in that school, not one teacher ever said that. To no, me. no, 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 no. Not one person said I was smart. Not one person said I could do something. I didn't even know what FBLA was. Why wouldn't I be an FBLA? I love business. Right. I didn't know what those things are, but it's very easy to then take credit of like, right. and so there's a motivation that came through some of that. Too, I love that. Of like, hey, I'm going to prove people wrong. I love that. Whether it was real or not. And then after high so, school, you go on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints to good old Fresno, California, Fresno State, shout out Mountain yep. West, um, with another legend in the sporting world, Larry Gellix. And yep. I cannot even imagine how incredible that was. I mean, everyone, I mean, we watched it. We, we, we watched forever strong for football. Like, sure. you know, it's a motivational movie. And then you got that coach was your mission president. What do you think about you changed the most while working with him for those two years? Um, I think my grandparents, I go back to my grandparents saved my life because my life could have been very different. They put, I had a home that I could build and whether I didn't take advantage of it, I looked up to my grandfather. I obviously loved my grandmother dearly and all of those things. But getting outside of Blanding mm-hmm. and seeing a guy like Larry, who was very similar to my grandfather in kind of who he was, but Larry did it on kind of another level. Right. And, and 
is Larry number one instilled probably the first person that's still in me vision mm. what I could become. So that didn't settle short, but two is discipline, man. He, he ran a very, very disciplined mission. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that until you come home and you hear all of my buddies talk about their mission. I'm like, my mission was nothing like that. Right. Like wasn't even close to the same. Like we lived in, in more military like structure, mm -hmm. but that that's how he ran his, if you know anything about his rugby teams, they ran in that type of discipline. Yeah. So he was not a mission president. He was just coach Gelwick. So obviously we called him president, but he took what he learned for 36 years of coaching and just transitioned that into a mission, which had, you know, when he was the rugby coach, he had 200 plus guys under him every year. Yeah. Cause we, in the full, in the movie, we just see the varsity team. Right. right. It was a full six, seven grade or yeah. Six grade um, groups. There's 200 kids. Right. And so as a missionary, we had the large, one of the largest missions in North America. We had 300 plus missionaries. He's like, this is just my rugby team. It's just my rugby team, and he ran it that way. And so he created discipline, which created culture. I love that. So discipline can create that culture. And so he talked about being being six 630 missionaries, not 631. Mm. And this is what taught me a lot, yeah. is that there isn't a big difference. He would always say, from a time standpoint, that's 60 seconds. 60 seconds, you know, from a time is not that big of a deal. But then he would turn around and say, but it's everything in life. Ooh. Right? Yeah. That, little that minute of you getting up at 6.30 or 6.31 is everything. And my brain didn't understand that at first because I'm pr the practical side. is like, dude, it's a minute. Why are we worried? Right. Right. We're up at 6.31. It's not a big deal. But he's starting to instill the discipline of, hey, get up at 6.30. Go run. Go do this. Go do this. Then get out and do what you're, you've been called to do. So discipline. And, and two of like of love. Like he – just he held people to a high standard so i'll give you this story about him kind of i was his own leader for like 21 months of my mission so i i've been to all the meetings with him and we were in a zone and we had um a down month mm -hmm. or down whatever and we reported right if embarrassed and then the next month dominated like we we taught more lessons we found more investigators than ever right like i think it was probably the record and I went to report to him thinking like, he's going to give me the flowers. Right. <laughs> and he cut me down. He And he almost like, he could almost sense on me that I was looking for some recognition. Like I was the big guy on top. Mm -hmm. and he, I don't know how I, I need that. Like actually talking about it. He probably doesn't remember, but he cut me down. And what he said after I'm like, last month, you didn't get mad at me. And I, the numbers are way better this month. <laughs> and then he's cutting me down and he's like, but who did you miss? He literally turned to me. He's like, Elder Swenson, who did you miss? Ooh. And I'm like, what? I'm like, oh man. And so he, he kept the bar high. Right. But he didn't, but, but something Liz taught as well is like, he, she used an example in the same sense of like, you know, her son was in, in the water. Liz Wiseman, awesome. Her son was in the water and the son kept going into the water and she kept saying, Hey, come back. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. But obviously the kid wasn't listening. And so what she did as the mom is look for the, what she called the perfect wave, mm -hmm. the wave that wouldn't hurt him. Right. The wave that wouldn't, wouldn't cause him to have trauma. Teach him a lesson. But, but, yeah. But the wave that was perfect enough to teach him that lesson. Yep. And I think Larry did that as well in that standpoint. But I think number one on my mission in Larry is he taught me hope and vision. I love that. That what we be, who we are right now is not who we will always be. That we can, we can, we can want more of our lives and who we can become. And so, as Gary Vee, which I know some of you follow as well, yeah. the, the non-spiritual, the spiritual version of that would be <laughs> faith and hope, right? So you've got you, works, right? So faith without works is dead. So we've got to work really hard, but we also have to have trust and hope that God will fulfill. Well, in work, while well, you see these successful entrepreneurs, they may not call it faith. They may not call right. it God. But as Gary B says, or Grant Cardone, Gary B's is dirt clouds. Yep. So it's a contradiction actually, right? So we need to focus on working right now, but we also need our vision in the clouds. Right, right. Which is a contradiction. Hands in the dirt, eyes in the clouds. The yep. But it's a constant, and that's where the machine is building somebody. When you can constantly 
have vision and then achieve the work ethic to that vision, you will get there. Grant Cardone's is easier because his book 10X, he goes, in my life, I had always had 10X effort. I was always working really hard. And I, I looked around and I couldn't realize how these people had all this money. Right. Like I'm working harder than anybody. Mm. What Grant lacked, and he talks about it, was vision. Mm. So he worked really hard, but he didn't have the vision to achieve more than what he was achieving. There's other people that have a whole lot of vision, meaning right. a whole lot of like, hey, I'm going to become this, but they don't have a work ethic that matches right. it. You need both. You don't need one. You need both. You need both. Because the person that just works hard, I've met a lot of those in blending. No, like I've met a lot of people in my life that no one could ever say that they didn't work hard. Yeah. They worked hard every day of their life. But knowing what I know now, my question to them would have been, why didn't you do more then? Yeah. Why? Because if you had that sense of discipline, you could have been so much more. Yeah. That's big. Because not many people have that. And so you, you, that's what Larry instilled with me either directly or indirectly yeah. is that dream big, dream big, but your work ethic better match it. Yeah. Um, so, Gary V talks about like being slow paced, slow paced and fast paced at the same time, like being fast paced, working your guts out and doing as if you can, but slow paced in, in the long term. you know, like looking for that, yep. you know, and I love that hands in the dirt with your eyes in the clouds. Um, and you got to have. And so after the mission, you kind of started down entrepreneur road, kind of, um, yep. you, you, you went to UVU and you're like, psych. Um, <laughs> and then you got involved with door to door. Um, did you do security before you went to solar? Mm -hmm. Vivint? Did security one summer okay. with Vivint in Houston and then didn't actually do very well. I mean, I did well, but I not, I it didn't, I didn't want to stay in there. Um, ended up going home and then going back to school at UVU again. Mm -hmm. So I kind of left school, went back to school and just serendipity or whatever it is you call it is I decided to go back to school and I pick up a job in the solar, solar company, right. but I wasn't doing sales. I was doing like office work. Yeah. It was just a part-time job so I could go to school and I was getting paid pretty well to just come in and do a very simple job. And you know, I was going back to school. That was my focus. I, um, after that, it was kind of crazy. I had met this, these, um, this group of people in Houston mm -hmm. and they were actually the granddaughters of John Huntsman oh, okay. <laughs> and Elder Ballard. So they were literally, their mom was Elder Ballard's mom or daughter and dad was John Huntsman's That's a big deal. Uh, son. And I'm like, wow, these are people. And that helped me with vision too. And I remember I got to go up to John's house and I got to, so this was as I was going back to UVU mm -hmm. before I ended up in solar. And I remember sitting in their home and that I'd never been in a home of a billionaire before. This was my first time. Right. And John taught me a lot in this, this really one interaction, which was a couple hours, you know, John Huntsman, a, a leader and a, a legend here in, in this community is is he had to be a billionaire yeah. and he's at the end of his life. I think he passed away a couple years later and all he wanted to do, he pulled me into his room and all he wanted to talk to me about was family history <laughs> and um, his mission. I love that. That's all he wanted to talk about. It wasn't about, I was right in the business mode of like, he didn't want to talk about, he wanted to talk about his mission when he was a mission president and he wanted to talk about family history. Yeah. And I, that shocked me. That surprised me because I wouldn't have, so we're in this big house, this, this thing. But I remember talking to his wife, his wife's sweetheart. She turns to me. I'm telling her all these things. She must have liked me somewhat. She goes, I'm like, yeah, I'm, go I'm going, I'm working. I need to work to go through school. And she turned to me and she's like, hey, you know, like we can probably get you a scholarship. <laughs> you know, we donate a lot of money. And I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. Your name's on the bill. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, um, but such a sweet lady. But that that was an important part of the journey too, because I saw these people of like, I think it snapped me out of the money, the need of this money. Because even a guy that made billions who was very competitive, you read his book, um, at the end of his life, he's talking about family and he's talking about missionary work. I love that. And so like, it's just a cycle. We just go through these cycles of life and these progressions. And so that led me in, I was in school, get this job. My dad ends up having heart problems, goes into heart failure. Oh. Um, and he calls me up, I'm on some trip and he's like, Hey, I think I just had a heart attack. I don't know. Goes to the doctor. I'm like, I'm in January. So I'm in my second semester back in school working at this job and it's no good. And we have to figure out funds. 
We had to drain his 401k. It was my first experience with like wealth management oh, during a crisis. Yeah. And at the time, I just wasn't all in in school. And thankfully, this all happened. And I was like, you know what? I can get out of school and get my money back because it was during like the first Right, weeks. right, right. You can get reimbursed for that. I could it's do not a you. withdrawal. I could do like a win and it wouldn't hurt me. Yeah. So I decided to do it and take care of my dad um, as much as whatever that was. And I was there for as much and got him around a few places so did my siblings. But what that ultimately did is put it so I wasn't in school. Right. So I went back and was working more full time at this solar company. And Jared, the owner, comes to me a few months in. This is like March. My dad had his surgery. He was just getting better. And he said, hey, like, you know, as your dad gets better, do you want to go and open up an office in Texas? Whoa. Like you did door to door sales before. I'm sure you you know the in, inner side because you've been working here for four or five months. Right. Like you know how to run it. I don't need you just to do sales. Like I need you to build a team. Right. You think you can do that? And I'm like, heck yeah. He offered me a salary. All of my he offered me about 80 grand worth of cost. Yeah. So I paid my salary, paid all of my my living expenses, everything like that. Plus, I got a paid commission on top of right, that. on your sales. And in my head, my practical brain goes, Why am I in school? I'm going to make more money in being a manager of this. And so I dropped out, yep. dropped out. Obviously I left and that created this door to door path of what about two years yeah. where I just kind of worked my way up um, into two, ended up being two different solar companies right. and managed. Same. So I had, you know, probably 70, 80 people, if not more, I can't remember what it was under me at one given time. Wow. So I went to four different States and just opened up offices. Wow. Holy and smokes. So that's, I mean, it happened really quickly. We got to San Antonio. We became one of the top places. Then we went to Austin. Then I went to South Carolina. Then I went back to Utah. Like we started opening up offices. And so I got to kind of be an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur. Right. So I got to see build something without taking the cost. Right. Without taking the risk. Yeah. The risk of the risk was just my time. Yeah. Right. But I ain't doing anything at 24 or whatever it was years old. But you weren't like, investing millions of dollars on every branch or anything like that. You were just the hype man to go get it open. Yep. Man. And so, but it builds skills without me having to pay the price. That's of it. And that's something I didn't understand that. I, when I left those companies, one of them I left not in a perfect, I was mad at them and, and I felt like they didn't value me. But now looking back, I'm like, dude, now I know what they feel. Right. I know what it, feels like to have all the risk and I have pure empathy. I just, I have it, especially in a startup company that you think that they got everything in order and stuff's, you know, they're paying you in this paycheck to paycheck, especially in the beginning. So man, I think that taught me a lot. That was a lot more looking backwards than it was when I was in the moment, right. but I'm grateful for those. But once again, kind of answering that I did solar. It was great. I, I loved it, but I love the management side. I love building right. teams. I love probably learned that from Larry, the leadership aspect. That was something fun, which led me to get recruited into wealth management. Yeah. So that's how I. Yeah. You ended up yep. at, at, at uh, Oxford advisory group down in Florida out of nowhere. Yep. Like out of how nowhere. did that come about, man? I was all, it was just one of those dumb things you think about, like, what was I thinking? I was at a point where I had done pretty much the same thing twice with two companies. I had established all these offices twice, same places. And I just, I was at home and I'm like, I don't, I could make the money I'm making and stay with this company. But I, I just, I don't know. It was tough. And anyways, I had to fly to South Carolina uh, to do permits because South Carolina has these permits for solar that were really tough. And thankfully I posted it on Instagram and my buddy who I, who had worked in solar with me for a little bit of time was in our mission, elder Dixon, mm. Matt Dixon served with him briefly. Like he was in a different area, but I knew him. He was an older missionary. He didn't leave till he's 26. Mm. And so I was much younger than him, but he got home off his mission, worked in solar, then went and worked with his brothers. And he messaged me, you know, this is a year after me and him stopped working. Is this, together, Chris? He said, hey, this is, this was Matt, but he ends up, okay. He ends up saying, Hey, I see you're in Charleston. You should come up and sit with my brothers. You know, he'd been there a year working with his brothers. Um, and I had just this day where I could just leave and I had a rental car and I literally went to Macy's, bought a suit, hadn't had a suit since the mission. Right. And I put a suit on, I went up to Greenville and I don't know, they couldn't have set it up this way because it was only a day in advance. 
But that day I got to sit with them in like big deals. Oh, wow. I watched Chris close like multi-million dollar deals. Oh, wow. That evening they did a whole studio set at the, at, you know, ABC four or whatever it is in Charlotte. Like, right. like, and I'm, they're driving these Maseratis and I'm like, who are these? Right. People? What like, universe are we in? What is this? What is this world that I'm living in? And like, and we got to help people with managing their money and like, like some guy gave him a hug on the way out. And I'm like, what is this? This is not the sales that I've been used to like door to door. Right. Like that, th- it wasn't transactional. It was very much relationship based. Right. And that's what I just felt like I was good at. That's why management was easier because I'm good at relationships, but door to door sales, I could do it, mm-hmm. but I never got the motivation um, once the money was there. Right. So I, I literally, I kid you not, man, they offered me a job. They offered me a job as an advisor. I, I said, no, I will never be an advisor because I know how salespeople are treated. There's a diamond dozen, yep. right? That, that was my mentality. I said, I'm more than that. And I was like, hey, I can, build, I can build your company. Like, let me, I've done this for two others. Yes, I know I know sales. I can train that. But let me help you with marketing. Let me ultimately help you with business development. I don't want to be hired as an advisor. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, like maybe let me think about it. Like we'll figure it out on the way home. I quit my job Right on the flight. Right. I mentally quit my job. Yep. I didn't have, I hadn't, I had a job offer, but I didn't have a job. Yep. I quit my job. I go into my boss who I love to this day, um, owns the company. They're doing really well now. Um, it was like the third person there. <laughs> and I just said, Dallin, I'm quitting. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I call Chris up. So I met Chris and Sam Dixon. Yeah. So I call him up. I don't have a job now and I don't have money. And I didn't really plan this out very well. And you're like, I'm a hot and, tamale and everyone wants me. Okay. <laughs> and then Chris and them were like, Hey, I need you like next year. So like in six months. And I'm like, what? Like, like, uh... what? <laughs> so now I'm in this dilemma and I end up, my buddy says, Hey, there's another solar company. I kid you. I haven't told this part. There's another solar company that's hiring. So like the next week I get a job offer with almost the same pay I was making. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. Life's good. They were literally on Sleepy Ridge Golf Course. Their, their office oh, was. Man. I'm like, this is that's perfect. I can play life. golf. man. I can build this company like I did the other two. I can do what I needed. I'm fine. And I can figure out Chris and Sam are still going to hire me. We're a weekend. And my buddy who got me this job says, hey, just so you know, I found out this company's in bankruptcy. It's in freaking bankruptcy. I don't have a job. They told me I would make money. I do not have a job. And so I'm stressed. So I call out to Chris and Sam. They ended up paying me like part-time for like four <laughs> months before I ever moved out there. So they figured it out, which was nice. But but I, I don't know what it was. I just knew wherever I was was not getting me to the goals that I wanted. And these guys that I'd met one time showed me vision again, showed me something that I didn't know before and it helped. And that's why flying home, I couldn't keep doing the job I was doing because it had no vision for me. I had no ability to grow. And these guys, even though I took a massive pay cut, like these guys gave me that, that ability to see bigger because I watched them do it. That's huge. So that's what took me to Orlando and ultimately got in with them and, and they let me, I will give them this, like being a kid that knew nothing about the industry, they treated me like a partner. Wow. Like they treated me like a little brother. Like I was their little brother. Right. And that was fine. I appreciated that. But they let me in almost every meeting. They let me be a part of everything. They flew me like on the trips. And and as much as I consciously knew I was not a owner or partner, <laughs> yeah. they Treated that way, which allowed me to, I think, excel in the skills that I had and let me feel confident with my ideas that I didn't have to like pitch them my ideas. Like I could just go do it Mm -hmm. and show them that it was impacted. So we had, you know, an incredible relationship on business development and ended up becoming an advisor, which is funny that I said I didn't want to do that. Right. But the need came where we had to let go of an advisor or something and they needed somebody to step in. And I knew the industry because I'd been there for a couple of years learning. And so I stepped in to fill a kind of a, a role mm-hmm. and I did really good at it. Dang. Like That's amazing. I, I, I ended up the highest closed rate, highest booking rates. And Chris ultimately called me and was like, hey, you're not going to do this stuff anymore. I need you to be an advisor. I need you to go get licensed. I need you to go 
um, this is your new track. And I trusted him enough to say, you know what, this is, he's probably right. And this is what I need to do. That's amazing. So, and then bam, fast forward, you've opened up your own flipping company here in Utah. I was floored when I saw that you were moving back to Utah. And I was like, what is what is going on? He's he starting he start, he start from the ground zero, but no, you was not because you, you, you had the foundation of what you knew and what you needed to yep. do. And you had those skills to do it. And it's just been so fun. Your, your, your story is one of hope and vision. The two biggest things across your story hope and vision. and vision and so those who are listening and, never lose that and put people around you that give you that yeah like like your friend should be mirrors to you yeah. like the biggest asset your friend can be other than being there for you obviously mm -hmm. but is to be a mirror for you because there's things that you can't see in yourself that only others see and you need that reinforcement to say hey shay you're good at this hey nate you're good at this hey nate you can do this. Right. Hey, Nate, this is what you can be. Right. And if you don't have those people, Chris and Sam were that. I watched those two had more confidence that, that they needed. Like, but, but that confidence, you know, is what pushed everything forward. Yeah. And, and, and we, we need that from within and we need that from a God. We need that from a friend. We need that from other places in our lives because it helps us have the clarity and that vision. With you know, and then you got to work really hard. Right. Like you got to work. Long. <laughs> yeah, this didn't happen. This is my wife. We're, I'm still working sixty hour weeks. Right. Like this, this, this doesn't happen without that effort. But the vision made it a lot easier to to do the work. Yeah, it's amazing, man. It's amazing. This has been such a cool conversation. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for you know taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me, and thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Teaching Kindness. Man, oh man, our boy Shay is doing things. Um, where can people see what you're up to, man? Shameless plug time. Let's hear it. Yeah, I think follow on LinkedIn. I got a bunch of followers on LinkedIn yep. and then Instagram, I guess, is the two that we've had. As you get older, man, it's like yeah. I don't know, you keep up. I never even got like a TikTok. Like I, I feel like the old man yeah. that hasn't progressed <laughs> in the society. But I know it's important and I know that you're doing a lot of good things in the world that that needs to happen and and finding your role and finding, you know, the native genius to go and um, become more than just, you know, a job, but do something that makes an impact for generations to come is huge. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate your work too. Thank you so much. And all that will be in the podcast description guys. So please go check him out and all the great things that him and Stonebriar Financial are doing. And always remember you're wonderful. You are worthy. You are worth it. Go home and give your kids an eight second hug and we'll see you on the next one.